Okay, we sure? Okay. Well, is that me? Yes. Okay. Well, if we ever get the microphone situation worked out, we're going to talk about our Lord and Savior, Jesus, this morning. Um, If you would, turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. That's where we're going to be for the majority of this lesson. Colossians chapter 1. It's great to be out studying with everyone again. And it's a great privilege and an honor that we have to get to assemble together with God's people and to just read the word and to praise our Lord together, to grow in him together as a family. But before we get into Colossians 1, I have two questions that I want to ask you, and I, uh, they got spoiled for me because I accidentally put them as the first slide, but... I got two questions for you. One is, how would you describe Jesus? In other words, if you had to boil down everything about who Jesus is, what he has done, what he is doing, if you had to boil all that down into a few sentences, what would you say? That's a big question. I know it's a big question. But the second question is like it. How would you say that who Jesus is, what he's done, what he's going to do, how does that affect your day-to-day life? Does it affect your day-to-day life? Because the book of Colossians has a lot to say about the answer to both of these questions. So we're going to read some of that and we're going to look at maybe what our answers should be and see if they stack up to what our answers actually are. And a lot of the foundation of the overall message of this book comes from a passage found in Colossians 1. It's verses 15 through 20. And here we're kind of jumping in in the middle of a thought as Paul opens the letter and we'll cover some of those earlier thoughts as we go. But here we're going to read a beautiful section from Paul about who Jesus is and all the significance that that carries, the authority that Jesus has. And if you notice, depending on which translation you have, these verses, verses 15 through 20, they may have a funny little indention on them. They may kind of look different from the rest of the book. They may look like something more out of the Psalms and Prophets than the rest of the book. And and that is because what we're about to read here is poetry. Some theorize that this may even be a hymn that Paul writes here. And I'll probably use the terms poem and hymn kind of interchangeably for the rest of this lesson because it doesn't really matter much to me which you think it is. But regardless of which it is, it is a beautiful summation of the role of our Lord. And so we're going to just start reading Colossians chapter 1 and we'll just read 15 through 20. It says, he, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in the heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. 
All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven, or whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So obviously there's a lot to unpack in that poem, and we'll... Uh, We probably won't be able to cover everything in as much detail as you'd like, but what we're going to try to do is unpack the basic message of this hymn and see, essentially, what it says about Jesus and what it says about Jesus' role in our lives, about what is rightfully His. Because this hymn speaks to the importance of Jesus and the power and the authority that He has. And so we're just going to split this hymn up into two sections, try to better grasp what each of the sections say, and then we'll kind of throw it together and see who it says that our Lord is. And we'll just start with this first section again and really focus in on, as we read this, focus in on what Paul is saying Jesus has authority or dominion over. We're just going to read verses 15 through 17 this time. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So Paul says that Jesus is the image of God, that even though we cannot see God in this mortal plane, that we can actually see God in and through Jesus. Not that they bear some sort of physical resemblance, that somehow you can see Jesus and understand God just by looking at him physically, but that Jesus is by his very nature God. So that we see God through everything that Jesus says and does. That everything we have recorded for us, that Jesus' entire life is a physical manifestation of our God, perfectly revealing him to us. So that in John 14, when one of the disciples says, Lord, show us the Father and then we will be content. Jesus replied in verse 9, Have I been with you so long and you have not known me? Because the person who has seen me has seen the Father. That through Jesus we see the Father. And of course we all know that that means that Jesus is God. And that's what Paul follows that statement up with. He starts retelling the story of creation in Genesis 1, showing how Jesus was there from the very beginning. Showing that he is the firstborn of creation. Not that he was created, but in the way of something like Psalm 89, if you want to turn with me there.
Psalm 89, and we'll read verses 27 through 29. And this is what it says about the prophesied messianic king of Israel. I, that is God, will appoint him to be my firstborn son, the most exalted of earth's kings. I will always extend my loyal love to him and my covenant with him is secure. I will give him an eternal dynasty and make his throne as enduring as the skies above. The idea being that God's firstborn, the Messiah, the king, he will be given all things. He will rule over all the earth. Paul here is showing Jesus' stature and importance. As the firstborn of creation, God has placed him over all creation as its king. But Paul then goes on to say that all things are created through Jesus and for Jesus. That all of the great things that you can think of, just all of the great wonders of this physical life. When you think of stars and galaxies and mountains and depths of the ocean, everything that resides in those spheres, even down to the most minute single-celled organisms, even all of the things that we don't understand, everything in the unseen spiritual world, that all of it is His that none of it could be created without him, that all of it points to him, that he is, in essence, the goal of all creation. The goal is that all things created would be put under his rule, that Jesus is made the Lord of creation. And then Paul adds that he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That not only did he create it all, but he's not some sort of God who created it all and then left it be because he wasn't really interested in it. That he's not a God that has no interest in the well-being of what he has created, but he sustains it all. And that all things point to him as king and lord. So I asked you before we read that passage to think what this poem showed Jesus to have authority over. And now that I've beat that point into the ground, let's think about our answer. And maybe it'd be easier to answer what Jesus is not over, what Jesus doesn't have authority of, because if he has authority over all things that are created, if he is king over all creation, everything larger than we can comprehend, everything smaller than we can comprehend, physical and spiritual, if he has authority over all that, then what in creation does he not have authority over? And that is a trick question because the answer is clearly that there is nothing created that Jesus as our God as Lord over creation there is nothing he does not have authority over that's all fine and good to say 
But those are some big sort of concepts. Those are the kinds of things that if you think about it too long, you'll give yourself a migraine trying to picture Jesus as having authority over absolutely everything, and then you just take two seconds to think about how big everything really is. It's an amazing set of statements to me showing how important Jesus really is. That all we see and all we don't see, that it all tells the story of him as our king and our God. But sometimes I get a little lost in those big concepts. I get lost in the vastness of Jesus' power. But luckily the hymn doesn't end there. Because right after that, after the mind-blowing authority of Jesus has been shown and established, Paul brings everything a little bit closer to home in verses 18 through 20. If you want to read that with me. It says, And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in, him, that everything, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So Paul reminds us here that since Christ is Lord over everything, that means he's Lord over the church too. That just as he is the king over all creation, he is the king over the new spiritual creation, the new spiritual people of God. In fact, he's the head of our body, which is a phrase that we're familiar with. We see that a few times in scripture and we've all heard it before. But sometimes I think we forget what it really means. So let me ask you this. How important is the head to the body? This is pretty, pretty important, right? That essentially the body cannot survive without the head. That it is no real body without the head. The idea being that just like our physical bodies where the body itself is completely useless without being guided and controlled by what the head says, that we as the church, as the spiritual body, we're completely useless if we're not following Jesus for our direction, if we're not recognizing the sovereignty of our King and our God. In essence, we are dependent on Him in all things. And Paul says that Jesus is the beginning, both in that He was the Creator in the beginning, like we talked about earlier, and that He ushered in this new age, this new age of the church, with his life, death, and resurrection. That he is the source of all life, both physical, like we talked about in verses 15 through 17, but in this section, he is the source of all spiritual life. And one of the proofs of that is that he is the firstborn from the dead. That by him going from mortal man to resurrected and ascended Lord, he ushered in a new age of spiritual life and resurrection. Freeing man from the great enemies of sin and death. 
Restoring them in some ways to the first creation that he also ushered in. And Paul says that all of this proves that he was who he said he was. That he is preeminent or supreme, depending on your translation. That through the death and resurrection, Jesus proved who he was as the all-powerful king and creator. That his death and resurrection proves, as the poem said, that the fullness of God was in Christ. Not that he was half man, half God, like we sometimes think about it, but that he was fully God and fully man, 100% God, 100% man. And I know that's 200%, and that that math doesn't really check out, but that is the full, complex picture that we get of our Lord. And the conclusion of this amazing thought is this, that God chose to reconcile all things to himself, God chose to make peace through the blood of his cross. The idea being that that making peace, conquering the enemies of sin and death, but not doing it by an amazing display of physical power and majesty, like maybe what you would expect from an earthly king. But instead, Jesus conquered sin and death through humility. You could even say humiliation, conquering through suffering and death. That through his own bloodshed, our Lord reconciled us to him. That he recreated us. And I know that that's a lot in just a few verses here. That maybe if you zoned out for five seconds, that you, you get lost in the weeds of this passage. But I think the message of this hymn is best seen in the parallels between the two sections. That Christ is shown as the source, both of physical life as God and creator all the way back at the beginning. But also the source of spiritual life where he ushered in the age of the new people of God with his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And how Christ is the firstborn of creation, given authority over all things visible and invisible. But he is also the firstborn of the dead, made Lord over the spiritual creation that he ushered in. And just as he was made head of all things physically, he was also made head of the church. And that just as the goal and purpose of physical creation was that all things may be put in subjection and given back to him, the goal of the spiritual creation of the church is that all things may be reconciled to him as well. In short, this poem shows us the authority of Christ, but also the manner in which we must be subject to him. But if you're anything like me, I'm not exactly a poetry guy most of the time. That's not, that's not where I spend a lot of my time. And you, you might say, that's all fine and good, but what do I do with that? 
How does this knowledge affect my life? And that's what the rest of the book of Colossians shows. And as we begin to make application, we'll just look at some of those examples. Because the main thing that we want to take away from this, practically speaking, is that who Jesus is has to affect our life. That our knowledge of our Lord changes who we are and what we do. And one way that we can see that is if you actually want to look at the verses directly preceding this poem. If you want to look at Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14 with me. Here, Paul is, is going to refer to some news that he heard from one of his, uh, from, from one of his fellow workers, uh, Epaphras, about the work in Colossae. And he says, And so from the day that we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of our Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That we are called to walk worthy of the Lord. That the way that we live is completely dictated by who Christ is. And down a few verses later, in verse, verses 22 and 23, Paul says that we can fulfill this reconciliation that we've been talking about. We can fulfill this us being transferred to the kingdom of Jesus that we saw in the hymn by walking steadfast in the faith in order that we may be presented as holy and blameless and above reproach before him, that we may, as Christians, that the the purpose of everything that we do is that it brings us closer to our Lord and our God, that we must evaluate our choices and actions, the fruit our heart produces, by asking ourselves, are we walking blameless in Christ's light, in a manner worthy and fully pleasing to him? And if we find that we're not, then we need to make some changes. But let's get even more specific, because the book offers many specific applications on ways we can adhere to Christ's call to walk blameless before him. If you want to turn to chapter 3, Colossians chapter 3, we'll read verses 11 through 17 for one short example of that. It says, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. 
Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through him. So, if we are to fully acknowledge who our Lord is... Not just in words, but in actually realizing who Jesus is. That it means we'll change who we are in our hearts. That knowing Jesus changes who we are. That because of Christ, we will seek to become compassionate. We'll seek to become kind and humble and meek and patient that we will strive to live with an internal perspective. But also, knowing who Jesus is will lead us to helping each other. It will lead us to encouraging each other, serving each other, like we talked about from Ezekiel 33 last week. In other words, acknowledging who Jesus is will bring us to living in love for him, and living in love for others. Having his word in us and living by it and sharing in it with the body, doing all things for Christ. We must let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. We have to give our hearts to him. We have to completely surrender who we are to him. And the book of Colossians gives a lot of examples for that, what kind of living, living in a manner worthy of our Lord, what that looks like. Because right after what we just read from Colossians 3, it goes into instructions for husbands and wives and fathers and children and slaves and masters. And on first glance, that kind of seems unrelated. It seems that Paul kind of ran out of things to say, and so he just tacked on an appendix to the end of the book just because it, it may, might be helpful to somebody. But of course, we know that in the context of everything that what we've talked about, in the context of everything that becomes before it, it becomes another set of examples on how we can give ourselves to Christ in the way we live, how we can let him rule over our hearts, how we can center our lives around his word in us by how we treat our families. Or the section in the middle of the book where Paul talks about his sufferings in Christ like he did in 2 Corinthians 1 where we read last week. And he said through those sufferings he was able to center his life around the life and death of our Lord. The idea of knowing who Jesus is directly leading us to better trust and follow him. That's all over the letter. 
And I wish that we could really take the time to trace these themes all throughout the book. Because it really does, once you look at it, it permeates every single section of the book. But I can't do that today. So I've got a little homework assignment for you. I know nobody likes homework, but this isn't a hard one. Just take some time this week to read the book of Colossians. And I know it sounds like that's a big thing because it says, it says book at the beginning. But you know how long it takes to read Colossians from end to end? And I mean if you really sit there and read it, about 10, 15 minutes. That's all I'm asking, that you take 10 to 15 minutes of your week and center it around studying how you can better give yourself to our Lord. How you can better come closer to living that holy, blameless life that we're called to. How you can better love him and love those around you. How we can center our lives and base our lives on who Jesus is. But to wrap it up this morning, I want to come back to these main questions. Where we started everything with this morning. So who do you think Jesus is? Because if you really know what we read in that poem, if you really understand it, it will change how you live your daily life, how you talk, how you think, what you spend your time on, how you treat others. In every facet of our lives, we need to be guided by the one who is creator the king, the goal of all creation, the Lord of everything that we see and know, and the Lord of me, and the Lord of you, that we are called to live by following in a manner worthy of him, so that we may be reconciled to him. He has to be our goal, our purpose, and our head. And I I don't think that it's not that any of us know that. That's not why I'm preaching this lesson, because I do think we all know it. But do we live like we understand it? Because that's a lot harder, and yet it's absolutely essential. So I ask that you rededicate yourself to our creator. And we're going to offer a prayer, and then we're going to be dismissed to our classes. Father in heaven, help us to be better dedicated to your son. Help us to surrender our hearts to him and let him reign over us. To help us live in a manner worthy of him. Not relying on ourselves, but surrendering our will to his will. Help us to keep his word in us at all times. Thank you for your strength and joy that comes from your way. Thank you for the hope and reconciliation that comes from your path and help us to keep our eternal goal before us always. In your son, the firstborn of creation and firstborn of the dead, our Lord's name we pray, amen.